find it in your Christmas cards. Well, you used to be able to find it in every Christmas card, but there's very few scripture texts in any Christmas cards these days. Isaiah chapter 9, and of course verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Amen. There are lots of things in this world that are full of wonder. Martin, leading Holy Communion, has already mentioned some of those wonderful things of nature. Uh, I think of the beautiful symmetry and geometry of a simple snowflake. Of all the billions that fall in a snowstorm, there's not one that is identical to the other. You think of the complexity and the intricacies of our human DNA that has baffled the best of brains for generations. You think of a golden sunset painted wings of a butterfly, of a beautiful flower. And all of these things and many more, of course, are the wonders of nature that God has put on this earth and thank God for them. But there is something that is all-surpassing, that is all-transcending, that is preeminent above all of the wonders of this world, and that is the wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at this time of the year, this Advent season, one week before Christmas, our thoughts quite naturally uh, turn to Christ coming into this earth and coming to this old world as a little baby born in a manger. And if we could turn to Luke chapter 1 and just read a few verses together just to remind ourselves of that wonderful event. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing <coughs> shall be impossible. And in chapter 2 of <coughs> Luke, verse 6, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So what a wonder. What a thing of wonder is the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In what way was it wonderful? Well, it was wonderful, first of all, in a biological way. I mean by that the nature of it. The nature of it. All births, without doubt, are wonderful. Any birth is wonderful. Thank God for them. It's a mystery, isn't it? And it's a wonder. You think from conception to birth, think of the fusing together of bone and muscle and sinew and tissue and blood. It's a wonder. The coalescing of spirit and body and soul into an entity with its own unique personality. It's a wonder. I think it's only the regularity and the common event of it that babies are born so often that we lose the sense of the wonder of it. Except, of course, if you're a parent. And particularly if you're a first-time parent and it's your first child. And you look at that little bundle in your arm and you think, that's part of me. That child will grow up to have my characteristics or the mother's characteristics. And in a sense, we made that. Oh, we know God is the creator of all things, but in a sense, that's part of us, and it's a wonder. Bob North is sitting here, is over visiting today because he's had another grandchild. The fourth, he was telling me. So they're, they're piling up, aren't they? I was telling his father Abraham, so he is. And, uh, and no doubt, even as a parent, but as you're a grandparent, it's even more wonderful. And, uh, and you look at your child having a child, and it's a great wonder. It's a thing of great beauty and wonder. But there was something here about the Christ child. In Galatians 4 and 4, it said that whenever the time had fully come, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Born of a woman. Now, isn't every baby born of a woman? And so Paul is not just stating the obvious here when he says it was born of a woman. He's talking about the condescension of Christ, that the Son of God would actually be born as a little baby through a woman. Not that he came here born by angels and placed in a little crib. Mary, for nine months, had a bump she had a bump. And that little bump was the Son of God, the creator of the ends of the earth, 
It's wonderful. It's something that's full of wonder. A mystery that we said last week, such things the angels desire to look into. It's incredible that the Son of God would become the Son of Mary. That the infinite will become an infant. That deity would clothe itself with humanity. It's a wonder, isn't it? In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing of these things. Speaking about this condescension of Christ. In verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul uses two words here. When he says, he, being in the form of God, the word is morphe, and it means being in essence God. Then he said, was found in appearance as a man, in a schema, and that means outward appearance as a man. There's that dual nature. God, Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. It's a wonder, isn't it? It's a mystery, but it's a wonder that God would come and take upon himself human flesh, a man, human body, but yet the God-man, in essence, the very God, the second person of the divine trinity. It's wonderful. Whenever Jesus stood before Pilate in John 18, he said something very profound. When he stood before Pilate in verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. For this cause I was born, for this cause came I into this world. But does not every one of us, did we not come into this world? Is not every baby that was ever born, did it not come into this world? Again, the Bible's not stating the obvious. Jesus 
came from another world into this world. He had been before the Son of God, but now becomes man. Somebody said he was the only man that ever lived before he was born. And in a sense, that's true, isn't it? And so, here he is saying, I was born. That's his humanity. Came I into this world. That speaks of his deity. For unto us a child is born, speaks of his humanity. Unto us a son is given, speaks of his deity. And this is the mystery of godliness. <laughs> That Paul talks about, that God, that God should be manifest in the flesh. This is a, a message that the world no longer hears. Think about all of the trips you made to the malls and the supermarkets this past few weeks. Think of all the tinsel that's on the sh in the shops and on the tree. Is there anything about the Son of God in any of it? None of it. Almost none of it. It's a message that's almost completely lost to this world that we live in. And this is why the church has got to preach it. And you've got to testify of it. And this is why we should turn up at church. This is why. Because the world has lost the message. It's just a holiday to them. It's not a holiday to us. It's a holy day. It's important that Christ come into this world. And so, as a child he was born, but as a son he was given. And so his birth was wonderful in a biological way, the very nature of it. And Jesus said, the Father has sent me in John 5, 37. John 16, 28, he says, I came from the Father. And in his great prayer in John 17, when he's talking directly to the Father, he says, I came forth from you, you sent me. He came from another world. And so it was wonderful in a biological way, but it was also wonderful in a chronological way. Not just the nature of it, but the timing of it. The timing of it. It was a pivotal moment in man's history. God hadn't spoken to this world for 400 years. Heaven was silent. The heavens were as brass. No angelic messenger. No speaking prophet, nothing. God just was not speaking. For four centuries, long lay the world in sin and error pining, the old Carl says. But at the right moment, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah prophesied the advent of the Messiah the anointed one, Christ, the Son of God. And he would come at the right moment and it wouldn't be a day early and it would not be a day late. You know, historically, Jesus was born at the right time. He was born at the time when the Roman Empire had been unified and had been settled and had been what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was enforced throughout the whole Roman Empire. As far as the Romans concerned, if you paid your taxes and you worshipped your gods, as long as you didn't bother them and paid your taxes, you could live at peace with them. But if you stepped out of line, they had an iron fist. 
And so all over the Roman Empire at this time, there was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. All right, it was an enforced peace, but it was a peace. And they are building great roadways all over their empire, and great trade routes were opening up. There never was going to be a better time for the church to be born through the Christ that was to be born. Never would be a better time for the message of the church of Christ to be taken out to the ends of the earth. And so chronologically, it was a good time. We get the word chronological from chronos. And chronos is, you know, a chronicle is a, a written record of past events, isn't it? And, and chronos is a moment of time. It's an era, it's an expanse of time, it's an, a period of time, a moment of time. But in that moment of time, there came a kairos moment, which was a moment in time. A moment in time. And so Christ, in chronos time, in that moment of time, which was a, a long extended period, these prophecies had been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years, but there came that kairos time, that moment in time, when Christ was born. Hundreds of years before Christ was born, Micah prophesied, Micah 5.2, where he would actually be born. And at the right moment, in the due season, when God their Father ordained since before the world began, right in that chronological time, there was a Kairos time, and suddenly... The heavens were opened and the angel appeared first of all to Zacharias and to Elizabeth for the birth of John and then to Mary and then to Joseph for the birth of Christ. And suddenly everything was happening in our great drama last year, last Christmas here. The angel alert, we saw a kind of a, a dramatized version of what happened behind the scenes in heaven. And it was wonderful, wasn't it? We so enjoyed that great drama. But you see this speaks in Galatians 4 and 4 when the time had fully come glory to God when it had fully come there never was a better time for Christ to be born do you believe that God knows what he's doing if you believe God knows what he's doing and if you believe that almighty God and his great wisdom organized that and arranged that and all that great long chronos of time there'd be a kairos time listen if he did that for that little baby to be born, can he not do something for you? Is there not a kairos time for your life? Is there not a moment in time? As well as a moment of time? Is there not a moment in time when he does things? When he breaks through in her life? Things you've prayed for for years? That loved one that suddenly gets saved that you never imagined ever would, even though you prayed almost non-belief? <laughs> and suddenly, God moves. And it happens in an instant. And so it was wonderful in a biological way. It was wonderful in a chronological way. But it was also wonderful in a genealogical way. In a genealogical way. 
not just the nature of it or the timing of it, but the, the lineage of it. The four Gospels present four different pictures of Christ, as it were, four different views. And that's why it's important to have the four, to have a, you know, a fully squared version of who Christ was and what he did and what he was like. There's lots of similarities when you read through, particularly the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, but, but there's lots of little spaces that each Gospel writer fills in. And that's why it's important to read all four. And if, if you look at the four Gospels, particularly the genealogies in the four Gospels, you'll see in Matthew, for instance, that because Matthew is presenting Christ as the King, you'll find that the genealogy there goes back particularly to King David. That was his lineage. Mary and Joseph were of the lineage of David, the king. Even though it didn't look like it when they couldn't find anywhere to stay in Bethlehem and had to sleep in a stable, but imagine, royal blood was coursing through their veins and yet they had to stay out in an old dirty stable. And then when you look at Mark's gospel, there's no lineage there. At all, because Mark is presenting Christ as the servant. The servant. And if you read through Matthew's short gospel, you'll find that he's highly active. It's a doing gospel. And of course then when you read in Luke chapter 3, uh, the lineage of Christ there, you'll see that Luke presenting him as the son of man. Because all the way back to Adam... And then, of course, John, who presents Jesus uniquely in the Gospels as the Son of God. How does John start his Gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go on down to verse 14. And that Word became flesh and came and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John takes him right back to the Father. So that lineage is important. Do you ever notice how the four Gospels end differently as well? Matthew, in his last chapter, there's an emphasis on the resurrection. In Mark, in his last chapter, there's an emphasis on the ascension. And in Luke, in his last chapter, there's, if you look carefully, there's a promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And in John's gospel, in his last chapter, if you look carefully, there's the promise that Christ will return. So all of these things are significant for us. And that's why it's important, by the way, that you should read all four Gospels. Get a full, rounded picture of who Christ was. Old Sidlow Baxter, that great Bible teacher that all Bible students has got his volumes in their library, I'm sure. He says that Matthew is saying, the promised one is here, see his credentials. Mark is saying, this is how he works, see his power. Luke is saying, this is what he is like. See his nature. And John is saying, this is who he was. See his deity. 
And so this birth was a wonder in a biological way. It was a wonder in a chronological way. It was a wonder in a genealogical way. But it was also a wonder in a sociological way. It had impact socially in the community, in the nation, and indeed in the whole world today. So whenever we talk about the birth of Christ, we're talking about something very, very, very important. And which is why Christians should get to the heart of the reason for the season. Although it's cliched, that statement, but they should get to the heart of it and uphold it and tell the world out there because they've lost the picture, the image, and the ideals of what Christmas is about. All right, you could argue there's, you know, any children in here? No, they're gone. You could argue that he wasn't born on the 25th of December, almost certainly not born on the 25th of December. Uh, however, it had to be one day he was born, 25th of December is a good day as any day, isn't it? You know, so we, we, we chose a day, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. I don't want to burst any more bubbles in case, but anyway. Uh, but as long as we celebrate his coming on a particular day, that's good to do, isn't it? And so there was much impact. In Luke chapter 2, and we're still okay for time, although we'll not overcook it, but in Luke chapter 2, it tells us something important here. We're talking here about the whole sociological impact of what happened around the birth of Christ. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Some of your verses may say taxed or a census taken. Basically means the same thing. Uh, whenever the Romans uh, had a census, you can be sure the sole purpose behind it was to tax everybody more. I think our government has learned a few things from the Romans, haven't they? They're asking very prying questions in their private lives these days in census form. Do you ever notice that? It's getting worse, isn't it? Almost embarrassing questions they're asking you. But at the end of the day, they want to know what everybody's got. Conscious is finding out if you've got a shed in your back garden, what size your garden, aerial photographs are being taken. What for? To tax us all the more. But anyway... The census was first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now the reason why I'm highlighting this scripture here is this. Caesar Augustus, that, that wasn't his name, that was his title. Caesar simply means emperor. And the Roman Senate in B.C. 28 decided that they would uh, name this particular man who was Gaius Julius Caesar 
uh, Octavianus. <laughs> That's a mouthful, isn't it? Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, or Octavian as he was called. However, they decided in their wisdom that they were going to give him this name of Augustus, which means highly revered, highly esteemed. If something is august, it's awesome, it's worshipful. And so they gave him this grand title. So from then on, he was known as Caesar Augustus. And it was under Caesar Augustus' rule, by the way, that Rome was united. He was brilliant in many ways. Uh, even though like all tyrants, he could be bloodthirsty and cruel, but he was brilliant in many ways. And it was him who brought in the Pax Romana that lasted for about 200 years. And so, here he is. He's the mightiest ruler on the face of the earth. And he's ruling the greatest empire on the face of the earth. The mighty Roman Empire from western Britain to eastern Tigris. I mean, this was a mighty, took in continents. And suddenly, he gets an idea at this particular time that he would have a census throughout all of his empire. A Roman edict had to be obeyed. It didn't matter what age you were, how young or old or infirm you were, you had to go back to your birthplace to be registered. Now think of this. Think of all of the millions upon untold millions of people all over the Roman Empire suddenly all moving all over the empire, like mass herds of wildebeest, all moving, many times maybe in long caravans, together for safety, and individuals too, all moving, and masses all over the empire. So that a carpenter and his betrothed wife and her little bump would have to go to Bethlehem to be born. That's what Almighty God did for this little baby to be born. He moved a whole empire. He moved a pagan emperor so that his son would be born in due season in Bethlehem so that a minor prophet's prophecy hundreds of years earlier, Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem would come true. God moved an empire. Listen, it was the whole civilized world of its day. And God moved it so that one prophecy regarding his son would be fulfilled. If God can do that, could he not do for us? Can God not move people for us if he has to? Can God not change circumstances if he has to? Of course he can. No wonder Jesus tells us not to worry about anything. Because God's in control. Eh? We worry ourselves sick. And God sits in these heavens and he can move empires. And feed prophets with ravens if he has to. He can speak to a prophet through a donkey if he wants to. Do anything. And so God does this wonderful thing so that his son would be born exactly and precisely 
as Micah had prophesied. Micah was just a minor prophet. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah was the big name prophet, but Micah was just, he was a countryman. He was from away out in the sticks. You know, he went to Jerusalem. He was just like a farmer. He's like Amos. But boy, when he, when he spoke the word of God, it came true. It took centuries and it took a whole empire to be moved. But his word did not fall to the ground. It came true because it was God's word. Amen. What an impact that made. And then in Matthew chapter 2, there was another decree as it were, of another kind, went forth from another king, wicked, evil, monstrous, mad dog of a king, Herod. And I'm not egging that. That was the truth about him. Here's a man who killed one of his wives, his mother-in-law, two or three of his sons, had them murdered. Here's a man who had Hundreds of people murdered on a whim of suspicion. Here was a, a, a Ledomite that the Romans had put in as a puppet king over Judea. And who loved his position and wielded at great power and influence. And yet, bloodthirsty as he was, he had a brilliant mind. He was a great master builder, but wicked to the core. Here was a man who, when he was dying, knew that nobody in the country would mourn his passing, not even a member of his family would mourn it. But he says, they'll mourn the day I die. He invited all the chief men of Israel to come to Jerusalem. And he rounded them all up and he imprisoned them. And he gave the word, when I die, slaughter every one of them. If they won't mourn for me, he says, they'll mourn for them. But he says, they'll be mourning when I die. This is the type of man we're talking about here. Whenever the wise man came to him and talked about a king was born, was seen his star in the east, alarm bells began to ring. He would have no other king but him. This was dangerous for him. Even though it was a little baby, young child, no other king could be in his territory. See, so remember what happened? He said to the wise man, you go and find out where he is. All the Jews knew where he was to be born. He was to be born in Bethlehem. So you go and find out where he is. And when you see the, the infant, he says, come back and tell me. Let me know. The dirty dog. There's no rascal, wasn't he? Of course, the wise men, they didn't know him, but they went and they found where the young child was. But God warned him in a dream. <laughs> God says, don't go back to him. Go back another way to your own country. And of course, when they did that, Herod was mad. He was incandescent with rage. And he sent out his soldiers to kill every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding districts. Didn't care. Every child would have to be killed so that, that baby would die. Imagine wanting to kill the very Son of God. 
course, Joseph had been warned too, hadn't he? To flee him, go into Egypt. Take the child, take Mary, go into Egypt. Stay there. Stay there until this guy dies. I'm paraphrasing. That's what happened. Now, you know, you think of Mary, when you think with it, whenever she was heavily pregnant with child, how that she had to go from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is 70 plus miles, on a donkey, nine months pregnant, hill country, must have been tough. Now she's had the baby, and Jesus maybe one year old by this time, round about maybe that. Now she's got to take a long, long journey into Egypt. It's just a young lass. I mean, it's just, just a slip of a girl. She must have been tough, huh? She must have been made of strong stuff. But they did it. And of course, the wise men had brought them the gold and the frankincense and the marriage, all the provisions they would need in Egypt to stay there as long as they need it. They had all that provision that God provided. And then eventually, the word came back that he who sought the young child's life had died. Old Herod was gone. But you know, whenever Herod died, the Romans put his son Archelaus in charge. And the idea was that he would rule the whole territory his father ruled. Now if Herod was bad, his son, this particular son was ten times worse. I mean, this man was just wicked. I mean, at one point he... <laughs> He took 3,000 Jewish people and he murdered them in the temple precincts. I mean, this man was just wicked. In fact, he was so wicked that the Romans, they just got to despise him. And they shipped him off to France. They, banned, they exiled him to France. So when he reigned a short time and then they booted him out because he was even bad for the Romans because they, he was upsetting whole of Jewry. And they didn't want anybody upset. They just wanted people to pay your taxes, worship your God, and get on with it. That's, that was the attitude. But Joseph, when he had heard that Archelaus had been ruling in place of Herod, he didn't want to go back to Nazareth. But God says, I want you to go back. It's now safe to go to Galilee than to go to Nazareth because God had taken care of Archelaus. He'd been kicked out. What am I, why am I saying all this? I'm showing you see that the, the whole social impact in communities and even a nation, even in the courts of the rulers, God was moving and he was shaking and he was doing everything. And this is why we've got to be encouraged, church. No matter how bad things look, even nationally or even personally or whatever, no matter how bad things look, our God is sitting on the throne today. And he'll move empires and nations and kings and despots. Who would have thought old Gaddafi, who'd ruled 40 years, who would have thought he had an end like that? You nearly felt sorry for him in the end. It was that bad. But he's gone. And there's great movements all over the earth. And not all of them good, by the way. And not all of them will be helpful to Israel. You can be sure of that. But again, all of this is in the plan. It's all in the plan. Because God's in control of it all. No matter what the enemy does, 
God will even, even the very wrath of man, the Bible says, God can cause it to prison. Simeon, that great, godly, devout man in the temple precincts. We'll close with this. On the eighth day after Jesus was born, as was the custom to be taken to the temple to be offered up unto God, dedicated to him, and to be circumcised on the eighth day. So Mary and Joseph come with the young child, and there's this godly man, deeply godly, devout man. And he's standing, Simeon, he's standing and he's watching. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. God had promised him. God had promised him that day would come when he would see the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. And he was faithful and he was true to God and God was faithful and true to him. And so he was watching one day of course, there'd be dozens and dozens and dozens of people coming in to offer up their babies. But he's watching one day, and the Holy Ghost spoke and says, that's the one. That's him. His heart must have jumped out of his chest. And he went over, and he took that little baby. And he says, now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. I tell you, Mary and Joseph, they needed to hear that too, didn't they? That must have been a great confirmation and encouragement to that young couple. Because you know all the tongues are wagging by now, weren't they? You know, child born out of wedlock. Well, they were betrothed. It was as good as marriage. It just hadn't been consummated. Usually be a year before the actual consummation. The marriage would take place. So all the tongues had been wagging. So they needed this confirmation and this comfort of this. But then in the midst of all the comfort and the consolation... He turns to Mary. He says, this child will be for the fall and rising again of many. And you know, that's true about Christ. Remember Jesus said, he says, think not I've come to bring peace. He says, I've come to bring a sword. Even within a family, father should be against the mother, brother against sister. On taking a stand for Christ, he means. So, he says, this child should be for the falling and rising again of many. So Christ will either be to some a stumbling stone that they'll fall over or a stepping stone that they'll stand up on, one or the other. To every one of us, he'll either be a stumbling stone or a stepping stone, fallen rising of many. Then he said these words. And he says, a sword will pierce your heart also. Not that she wanted to hear that, I'm sure. But boy, was ever anything prophetic. A sword shall pierce your heart also. Do you know, she had to live with that sword all the days of her life, piercing her heart. Actually, the word for sword is a big sword. You know, Romans are little short ones for infighting. This is a big sword. She'll pierce your heart also. And all through the raising of Jesus from babyhood to infancy to boyhood to manhood, rejected by his brothers. Is that this the carpenter's son, the religious leader said, you know, denied by the religious hierarchy, eventually crucified and put in a cross, and all that time she stood there looking at her dear son, being slain before her very eyes, being spat upon and shouted at and mocked, 
What a sore piercer in your heart. So the birth of this baby was very, very important, very impactful upon many, many lives. And do you know what? Aren't you glad that he has impacted our lives? Yeah? And this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we remind ourselves of that first advent when Jesus came. And of course it doesn't stop at the crib, it goes on to the cross, doesn't it? It goes on to the cross. And of course then there's the crown. <laughs> he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory, isn't he? And he's coming back for us, isn't he? You know, so it just leads on one from the other, doesn't it? But you've got to start somewhere. It starts at the advent, doesn't it? Aren't you glad for the accuracy and the truth of the Word of God today? We can, we can stand upon this, folks. We, we can count on this. Should it take centuries? Should it take empires to be moved? We can count on God's Word to be true. And it is true. Let the world mock. Let the atheists mock us. Let people in work laugh at us. What does it matter? We've got the truth. <laughs> It's going to happen anyway. They can mock and laugh all they want. Peter Hitchin, that celebrated atheist, has just died recently. It's very sad. Probably died an atheist. Probably died mocking God in his heart. He's going to find out now. It's too late, isn't it? But this word is true. It never fails. Amen? Let's pray.